Hey, welcome to the Bullpen Session. This is Patrick Lillis, and glad you're here, glad you're listening, glad you're back. This is Season 5 of our Bullpen Session uh, podcast, and excited to do it, excited to be back, um, kicking off right at the beginning of the World Series, so uh, good luck to Houston and Philly fans. Um, Gives me a good time to, as we prepare for the off-season of baseball, to prepare for the on-season of theater. And, you know, going into season five, I'm, I'm excited. We have uh, the farm as a college collab this year. The Deneen Reynolds Knot is our playwright. She is working in collaboration with Oklahoma City University, Furman University, Center College, and going out actually November 10th in two weeks to see the first production of Put Yourself Out There and uh, her play. I'm really excited with our new collaboration. I'm glad that's keeping going. And really excited to share with you the conversation I had with my friend Andrea Chenove, who's a TV writer and teacher and activist and a playwright. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Andrea, besides that she's great and incredibly talented and very generous with her knowledge and experience, and I say that just to know also that she teaches the TV writing class that everyone who takes talks about how incredibly valuable it is, and and I've taken it, and she is, uh, it's valuable not only because she's honest about the process and sort of demystifying it, which is what I love and then relates with the farm, but she's also generous with her time and, and spirit outside of the classroom and sharing with people, and, but one of the reasons I wanted to specifically kick off season five with her, and she had posted this article about you know, breaking up with, I think it was breaking up with acting or theater, and then she wrote her story, and and I thought it was relevant because she, and you'll hear us talk about it, she's a very su- externally successful playwright at the time, you know, had a production at the public and graduated from Juilliard's writing program and things like that, and then went into TV, and I thought what was interesting as we are shifting, as the industry is shifting, and how we go about getting work, and how uh, work is being offered and what's available and that we found different paths during the pandemic. I thought it was, it would be great to talk to Andrew just to hear about the decision to make a new change and, 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 and to make a, find a new path for yourself and find one that really fits. And, and not that I think everybody needs to make a change, but I know that people are talking about how do we do it differently? How am I, how do I work differently? How do I make my career fulfilling? How do I find the balance? And, you know, maybe it's not making a change, but but it's just listening to like what works for you and where, you know, one of the things we talked about in the conversation is going where it's warm, you know, and uh, finding out where it feels more open. And I think that's always good. And it's always good to evaluate, like, it's what I'm doing working for me. And, oh, could I do these, use these skills and the thing I love to do something else? So that's why I wanted to talk to Andrea. And then we ended up having a great conversation about that and many, many other things. And, you know, with that, play ball. Everything in my life feels like one giant pause button. Um, That's kind of the way things go at the moment. But uh, right now I'm on a show called, um, well, now it's called the Untitled Marines Project. Um, it's with uh, Andy Parker as the showrunner, um, and it's based on the memoir um, Pink Marine by Greg Cope White. And uh, that's 
uh, currently being produced by Sony and Netflix. And so we're sort of waiting for the um, final go ahead to open up another, like uh, a four week extension on that room and then go into pre-production and shooting. So we're sort of, I'll know more tomorrow actually. And um, yeah. what is your job on it? I'm a co-executive producer now. I was supervising producer for most of the year and then um, got a promotion in the last few months. Uh, so we're just sort of waiting for that to start. And when you said it's on pause and that's most of your life right now, is that because that's the world of television or that's post COVID world? I think it's probably both. Um, you know, like I, I wrote a pilot called life support that um, Jessica Goldberg brought to universal TV and they um, optioned it. Um, they optioned it actually on inauguration day. <laughs> so it's taken this long to get a team together to then go out and sell it. And so, you know, we're, so we're still in that process of like um, getting in. Uh, there's an actress we approached um, and and she's read it and liked it. And so we're just waiting for a hopeful, hopeful, hopeful for a yes. And um, and then we'll move forward with pitching it out to, uh, to buyers. So it's a lot of things like that. It's like, you know, can you do like, me a yeah? Do me a favor. Just talk to me. That is, I get things like that of what the pausing is when you're putting a show together like that. And right, so now you got Jessica. You brought it to somebody, and then you brought it to an actor. Got a director, and then we got. And now we're going for a, you know an actress um, to play the lead, and um, and so it's it's like each step is it progresses but you're waiting it could be a month and a half it could be you know like for example when universal said they wanted to option my pilot it then took six months for the deal to go through it's like that kind of stuff where i'm like what in the world right. and you're not the one saying wait wait let's slow down yeah no no not at all not at all but it, you know it's like there's a I think there's an outside perception of how fast things move and then there's the reality for most projects of how fast things move you know like if you think about hacks on HBO as an example like that took five years to get to air from somebody saying they were interested from from some from the script being written to then being shot it took you know eight years or like the famous story of Mad Men was sitting in Matt Weiner's you know briefcase or whatever for seven years before it got shot so there's, you know, it, it it there's a, I think writers, writers labor and they do all this work. And once they're done, they're like, okay, let's shoot, we're ready. And it's like, that's really not like, that is not how it goes because, you know, you're basically, you wrote something and you're, you're asking a community of people who don't know you to then invest tens to hundreds of millions of dollars in your idea yeah. <laughs> or, or a producer buys an IP, they buy a book. And they want people to sink, you know, a hundred million, two hundred, whatever, in this right. idea, you know, and to magically love the book as much as they do, right? And see all the the possibilities and all the things. And so it it you know it's uh it it's a it's a hard job. It's a hard job to get five people to do like one little thing, like pass out, you know, just to get people to go knock on doors for an election. It's like that's hard. <laughs> so this is harder. <laughs> it's harder to get them to knock on the door for your script. Right, exactly. <laughs> what I heard you say that's really interesting, though, is somebody who doesn't know you, right? Because to buy into this, how does that connection get made? How does that introduction get made? Meaning, is it like you said, oh, I gave it to Jessica. Did she have a relationship with the people she brought it to? 
Yeah, she has an overall deal at Universal. And so she asked me a couple of years ago, like I think I want to say 2017 or 2018 to write something. And then I did not do it for three years. Um, and we can talk about that too, but yeah, no, I didn't do it. And we'll it talk was, about it. <laughs> procrastination is a, is my love language. Um, and so <laughs> I, 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 I heard this great quote that I'm going to share that I heard it during hurricane Ian. So one of the people who run hurricane survival things said procrastination right. is not a survival strategy. And it just, you know, hit me at the right moment because all the reasons we do it or whatever, it's like, right. There's yeah. nothing protective. And there's nothing taking care of yourself that procrastination does. No, uh, no. And I, I mean, for me, like I have many reasons why I didn't write the script like immediately. Um, I felt part of me is like, I don't know what the story is. Part of it was like, I was on a show, which it's very hard to write when you're already working on another show. Cause you're, it takes your whole, it takes your whole life um, in terms of hours. And of course I was like scared and like, you know, but I, I always, whenever it's like, Oh, now it's time for you to write your own thing. I'm always like nail biting. It takes me forever. And then eventually I do it. Um, so, and I, I did start writing it basically when that show ended, the room ended in J July of 2020. <clears throat> and then I just started, wasn't working and I was looking for work and all the rest of it. So I just started working on, on that pilot. And, um, by the 20, by 2021, by, yeah, I mean, it happened, uh, what happened quickly was by the time I finished writing it, um, I got some notes from her, turned those around. We sent it over to Universal and within a couple of weeks, uh, or I sent it to my agents and then it's, I wanted them to read, we have the same agent too. So they read it, they, the feedback was very positive. They brought it over to Universal with Jessica um just to sort of like second every like her positive words about it and it, it took a couple of weeks and then i had an option so that happened fast okay you you had a pilot you have an agent you have a relationship with another person who has a relationship with an am i calling it a network in a network they have studio, yeah studio i i always i often like i'm like i don't know which one it is yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a studio studio and so like that means, you know, that's pretty entrenched. That's like, uh, you're now, you have a pathway at least. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean success or failure. It's guaranteed either it way. Means right? None of those things. It means a shot. You get, but you have a you shot. Get the opportunity to fall on your ass. Yeah. And you've worked in a bunch of rooms and you said, oh, I'm going to get work. I'm looking for work while I'm writing this. Nothing's happening. But take me back. Like, how'd you get in the first room? I mean, the 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 very first time I ever wrote for television was because of Tom Fontana. And it was like, and I, I could not really have predicted it because I, you know, I had written this play with, you know, that um, Labyrinth Theater Company produced at the public as a development production and it ended up getting me into Juilliard because um, I applied that year. I, I applied because it was free. I, you know, I had no, I had no ask. I had no real like hope that I would get in. Um, and at the same time, I also, Luli Haddad, who had been the, um, was on the board for Labyrinth for a long time. She was serving on the same board with Tom Fontana for the Writers Guild East Foundation, which was a little foundation wing of the Writers Guild of America East. And they, this was 2008. They 
had discovered, um, <laughs> they discovered that they were sitting on $250,000 that the writer of Carousel had left for them. <laughs> it just been sitting there for like decades wow. or something. Yeah, yeah, crazy. So they found this money. And so the board was like, well, we want to do something good with the money. Like how do we serve the community with this money? And at the time there was um, the, the, the subject of PTSD from um, veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan had to become more sort of like prominent in the culture. So the, um, so Tom and, and the board decided that they wanted to do these free um, writing workshops for wounded veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. Luli suggested that he hire me to to basically produce it and run it and do it. So that's what I did. I I got together with Luli, and we found vendors. We found partners with veterans um, to like give us the community of people that would be interested in that sort of thing. And um and then I handled the travel and the accommodations and the catering and the workshops of all of this you stuff. Produced it. Right, right. I produced it. Um, and it was for anywhere from like 60 to 80 people all over the country. So we did Columbus, Ohio. We did San Antonio a bunch of times. We did Minneapolis. We did, um, I know they did some, we did Seattle. We did launch to Germany. So I did that job from 2008 until basically 2018. But Tom essentially after the first two years, so in 2010, he asked me, like we were, I tell the story often, like he and I were in the public library at San Antonio running these workshops. It was on a lunch break. I, it was just the two of us in this cafeteria. And he asked me if I wanted to write on his show, Borgia. And I was like mid bite on a chicken wrap and almost choked. Cause I couldn't believe like, there's like, I was like, what? <laughs> like, cause nothing ever happens for me that easily. <laughs> so I was like, and he was very like demure about it. He's like, I was wondering if you'd be interested in writing for my TV show. I'm like, yeah, Tom, I'd be fucking interested in writing for you. Like, <laughs> you're insane. Like, you just dropped a Christmas present on my lap. So that's how it started. I'm going to ask him, wait, but yeah. you did drop the Christmas. Were you thinking about that? Was that part of your relationship? Um, were you aware? Were you like, hey, maybe I should ask him or? I did not ask for that. Um, I assumed he knew I was a writer. He knows I'm looking for work. It doesn't take a genius to figure out what writers need or want, right? So in my mind, I was surrounded by writers from all different kinds of mediums. There were journalists, poets, TV, film, whatever, playwrights. And my feeling was it was it was more of a vague, like, well, a relationship will happen out of this, obviously. You know, he is my boss and I'm working for him, you know. And so who knows what that will develop into. But I never went to him and was like, can you staff me in one of your shows? Because I felt like that was obvious that I would love for that to be something. Right. I just, um, guess I wanted to clarify that it was in your, the, the awareness was in your head too. I, I was aware that I was running in a network of writers. Yeah. Right. And I was like, and the, the relationship I was forming with all of them was like, to me, like, it's like the way that I approached quote unquote networking was. I stuck with the people I like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be nice to this person because of something they can do for me maybe in the future. It was like, do I genuinely like this person? Am I interested in what they're doing? You know, like, just like sort of focusing just on like how I relate to them as a human being first and sort of letting the, the career stuff will take care of itself one way or another, or it won't. I mean, you know, I'd been in those situations with other artists who, were in a position to help me and they did not, you know what I mean? So it never is uh, a guarantee. So 
but I did have, I was aware, like, you know, this is this job, even though it was paying me like $18 an hour. Um, the, there were so many other benefits besides like the, the pay that was, it was, it was fine for a job, of course. Yeah. But, um, but learning about veterans and the diversity of their experience. And then eventually that turned into family caregivers too. being able to do a job that was like of service in that way. And then also getting to travel and see different cities, which I love to do. And then on top of it, it was like, I got to hang out with writers all the time. And that's fun. You know, it can be a pain in the ass. It's also fun. (laughs) So, right. So all of that was to me like a win-win. So when he, you know, he asked me if I wanted to write, um, that was not a room situation. It was a freelance writing um, gig. And so the difference being like, I was not in a writer's room. We didn't have to pitch story. Like none of that was a thing. He, he doesn't like to work that way. So I ended up, um, he would give me an outline that he and, you know, a co-creator had broken a whole season. They wrote outlines and they would dole them out to writers. And I was one of them. So that's how I started, um, which was a great way to get into it because you could at least see like the right. form you'd be dealing with. You'd see an outline, you'd see, you know, that kind of stuff. And he was like the best teacher because he would like, you know, I wanted to do a good job. So there were, it wasn't, it was high stakes because I wanted him to hire me again. But he also was very like cognizant of that this was my first time and, you know, as a, as a TV writer. And so I would get notes from him, one round of notes, I'd turn them around and send them in and then that would be it. And he invited me to go, you know, sit on set in Prague for season one, which was great. And that was a lot of fun. And I had no, I had no fucking idea what was going on, but I was like, let me just soak all of it in and learn what I can. And so that was a really great way sort of in. Simultaneously, Marsha Norman from when I was at Juilliard, Marsha Norman, you know, had recommended that I um, meet with these agents at UTA. And so I went for my meeting with them. And this was around the same time in 2010. And they were like, they read my plays and they're like, you know, um, yeah, you're like, you're a great writer. You're really dark. We don't really know what to do with you in television. So, you know, we're not going to sign you for right now, but like, it was great to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, great. Uh, um, this, this is the nicest rejection I've ever had in my life. And so I went back to New York and then um, 30 days, like literally like a month later. So they were like, all right. I'm like, okay, they need something that's like lighter and whatever. So I started writing a comedy um, that Scott Illingworth ended up directing at the Barn series um, the hard sell. And so I wrote this comedy and I sent that to them. And Tom had asked me to work for him during that time. So I emailed them and I was like, oh, hey, I have a job now. And here's a comedy. <laughs> and then they signed me and I've been with them ever since. Oh, that's great. And that, yeah. yeah, because so that was all kind of happening together. But then what they, so the, what they did was like, they were like, we need you to write a pilot. And I did the same shit where I didn't do it. I didn't write a pilot for three years. Instead, I traveled, Marsha Norman had me go on this crazy trip. I went to 10 countries in Africa, Asia, and South America. I came back, still hadn't written anything. I got involved in Occupy Wall Street. And then finally, Liz Tachilla was like, what is your problem, right, a pilot? And I was like, I'm, I literally was like, I'm not smart enough. I don't know how to do it. (laughs) Really dumb. She's like, and I was like, I have nothing to write about. She's like, you're writing, you're screaming about 15 things on Facebook. Pick one and just write about that. You know, like, just do it. Yeah. So then I, that's when I looked at my life and I was like, all right, what, what is my life like right now? I'm like, okay, it's veterans. It's travel to different countries and it's political activism. And so I came, I came up with this idea to, for a pilot um, called Bowling Green. And I um, took Francine Volpe's um, script class 
I wrote a draft of a pilot. My agents, I didn't have a manager at the time. My agents read it. They, they liked it. They gave me notes. Um, I turned those around on that note on, on that and then got it to them. And this was in 20, I want to say this was like early fall of 2013. And then by the spring of 2014, I was hired in my first staff room off that sample. So about six months later, I had a job and had five days to move to LA and came and never went back. And that's when you moved. Yeah. When I moved. Yeah. And there was a lot of shit that happened before then, but yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, but, but what I, you know, it's interesting, right? Somebody says, I need you to write a pilot so that I can get you a job. Mm -hmm. And, and, and they were truthful because right. you wrote a pilot and then they were able to get you a job. They job. Right. didn't mean that pilot's getting done. That means I can get you a job. Yeah. I'm going to talk about the Marsha Norman thing in a minute, that project. But so going from, I don't know enough, I'm not smart enough, which is absolutely not true by anybody who knows you, but I'm not smart enough to, I'm co-executive producing. <laughs> what changed? What do you... So I heard who helped you and how it happened, right, to the next level. But one of the things that I like to ask is, like, what do you think you carry with you now? Because you still obviously have the procrastination and, you know, there's still all those. That is, but I am better about the procrastination thing than I was. Like, that has improved vastly. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think you carry with you now that maybe you didn't, that you didn't have the first time you went to Prague to sit on the set? You know? Right. Well, I think that I've had it's like with anything, when you practice something enough, you become more comfortable with it. And so I feel like I have more confidence now in my ability to think through like story and be able to diagnose when something isn't working and why it might not be working. Um, I feel like I am not married to my thoughts as much as I used to be, or like the way I want things to be in a story. Like, I feel like sometimes, um, being too closely like in love with your own stuff is a huge impediment. Um, you learn, I learn from other writers all the time and listening to how they sort of digest story or how they talk about story. Um, and, and I think also like, you know, I've been in like uh, five rooms, I think thereabouts. And one of them was for three years um, and in that room was really hard. Um, it was, it was very challenging for lots of reasons and that had both to do with the work and with the sort of like the dynamics in the room. And, but it also gave me, so, but I learned a lot from that. And then on top of it, like one of the, one of the sort of like positive things about that show is that they let you produce your own episodes, which, you know, is not, um, as common as it should be. So you just, you, it just was about learning more and more and, and having a, a um, more of a acknowledgement and a pre and, and, and a real appreciation for all of the work from hundreds of people that goes into making this, this show, you know what I mean? Whatever show it is. Um, and so I feel like that, that kind of like, that sort of feeling of like, the team of it all, the, like, it's not just you of it all. Like that was really helpful to me. Um, and finding, and I think also being able to find um, things about every character that you love or every story that you love, even if it's like not a hundred percent, like what you would write or how you would write it, 
you can see yourself in the work somehow and be able to be of service to that showrunner to help them realize the show they want to tell, regardless of how you might feel about it. I, and that yeah, makes sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I was listening, yeah, listening to the idea of like, you know, letting go of things and thinking like in theater, the playwright has so much, it feels like you're serving the playwright so much more. And in the television, it seems like you're, you're serving the, the show. The yeah. Show. The show. Yeah. And whatever the show needs, whether the writer needs that or not, doesn't matter. It's what the show requires that's important. It, it, it can be that. I mean, on, a, in a lot of ways, like the, like, you know, as opposed to film, which is very sort of like uh, leveraged toward, like it's weighted towards the director. Um, TV really is weighted towards the writers, especially because, you know, showrunners and co-EPs, like those producer level people, they're all writers. They all started off as staff writers usually. Um, you know, there's above them is like the studio executives and the network executives, like that's those folks. But then in the sort of like, in the, in the direction of the show, it's the showrunner who's usually is a writer. Um, the producing director is a director and also producing and they help keep, you know, the, the consistency of the directors sort of like there. Um, you'll have, you know, Poe T who's sort of like the right hand for the showrunner, also a writer. And so, and they are sort of trusted with <clears throat> making sure, sure that th their work uh, you know, is is adhered to by the actors, by the other writers, by the teams that they put together. So it it there that that thing that you're talking about, that's sort of like the playwright's vision. That there is some of that in in television. Yeah, I think it's there. Actually, it's funny. I think I knew that. I guess I'm thinking about the writer room when you're in when you're in the room as the writer. You're mm -hmm. and I I don't think I phrased it right. Is but your job is to serve the show as opposed to like, no this. Plot yeah, key to so me. You always hope for a showrunner who's open to hearing things that might sort of bump up against what their thought is. You know what I mean? Like I, I've worked with I've worked with writers who are like they come in with it or a showrunner who comes in with an idea and they're like, "This is what I think I want," you know. But he like is but um, Andy, the person I'm working with right now, he's very like. It, there were certain things that are like, this is what I want and that's non-negotiable. And as long as we all know what that is, like, that's great, you know? And there, and there are certain like tonal decisions in the show that you want to like adhere to. Like you can't go in and pitch like a bloody, you know, murder scene in this show. It doesn't fit totally, you know what I mean? Or there's a certain, um, there's a certain malevolence that is not present in this show. You know what I mean? It, it, you know, you have to kind of feel it out, but he is very open to like, if I hear a better pitch than the one that I have, I will go with it <laughs> because I want, yeah. So I better, think that's better, better is better. Better is better, right. Uh, just could I be remiss not to ask this question, but when you, you're looking for work now and you, you, most writers you said in a room are this, and I know that a ton of theater writers who are maybe just starting or in the, a little bit established all start to think at some point like oh maybe i should write for television or whatever but what's the reality of how that happens how does that room like okay right now like you and jessica pitch a project so there's two of you right and your co-eps i'm guessing um yeah. and like how does a room get together you like you said your agent shopped you so that's one person 
that that's yeah, one person on that team that didn't know anybody. Maybe. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different ways. I, you know, the show that I'm currently on, on the Marine project, that one was, I didn't know the showrunner. I didn't know anybody associated with that project. They read my pilot and um, Andy read my pilot and wanted to meet with me. So that's how I got the job. Well, that was part of it. He read me. I met with him. I also read the book. <laughs> then I met with like all of the folks from like all the different, you know, um, Sony and Gemstone. And I met the writer who wrote the memoir. And like, you know, so there was like many hoops. Um, and also had to like call my former, you know, showrunners and be like, can you put in a good word for me with Andy? So he, you know, because there's always this, the reason why people hire the folks that they know is because they know them. And what you don't with the nightmare scenario is to hire a writer who does a great interview, says all the right things, and then shows up in the room and like can't hack it on the page or they're not good in the room or they bring some other nonsense into the room that is really toxic and unproductive. And that is a nightmare. Um, so it, it it is not surprising to me that showrunners often are like, these are the people that they want, you know, it, because of that. The problem is though, like that cannot, like there's, a, that's a double-edged sword because you do want to, you want diversity in the room, not only just like diversity on the sort of like DEI level, which you definitely do want that, um, but also just like um, storytelling, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't love the idea of, um, of always just picking the people that you know, um, but I, I do understand why why it happens um, on on one level, um, but I do think it is far too uh, too frequent. So, in any case, for me, like um, the ways I've gotten work is things like Tom Fontana, where he just asked me because I've been working for him for in a in a sort of an assistant type way for a couple of years, and that's what he actually does. Like he'll he, his assistants all eventually become apprenticed up through television a lot of showrunners will do that um if they're you know they have showrunners assistants that sort of thing um i've gotten jobs because like john ortiz one night texted me at 11 o'clock at night and was like he was shooting a pilot it was for mayans and he was like hey um you know they want to they want a woman who can write you know a rebel leader <laughs> not <laughs> like send your script over to, you know so i did and they read the script and like again many many hoops um and but i eventually got that job like I think eight months later, the room started. So it, it's been through my own networks. It's been through my manager or through my agents submitting my samples to people and they take a meeting with me. It's been, um, you know, I, my relationship with Jessica Goldberg, she hired me on the path um, for half a season. Um, you know, it like it, it's, there's many different directions that it can go in, but it, you know, and that took like many years for me to build that network of people. And building that network, this is, is there a time when you're asking for favors and introductions or are you still using the model of I'm a writer, they know who I'm a writer, like you said with Fontana? I, um, so I have many times in the last, you know, whatever, 12 years, I've sent emails out to like writers that I know are either working in television or a showrunner level. And I would say very simply like, hey, I'm looking for work. If you see anything that you think I would be right for, please let me know. I'd love to throw my hat in the ring and leave it at that. And, and, or it would be like, Hey, there's this show that I know is staffing. Um, and if I knew someone who knew them, I'd ask, like, do you feel comfortable submitting, like, you know, sort of recommending me to them, you know, and, and sometimes they would say yes. And sometimes they would say no, you know what I mean? Like, depending, like, you know, it'd be like, I can't, I don't really ever like, I don't know them that well or whatever. And I'd be like, okay, like there, there's no harm in asking. 
I have been asked by people a hundred times. And if I can do it, I totally do. I, I there's, I don't, I think there might've been one time where I couldn't um, send an email for that someone, but like, I am more than happy to like, try to help someone get a job than not, you know what I mean? And so, and that, and that has been generosity that's been shown to me many times. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm always interested in that because I think the, I, I think we have to ask. You have to, because it's like, I mean, you know, someone like Tom, like he's been around long enough that he knows, like, I'm, I am a writer working for an $18 an hour job doing this thing. Like he knows that I want to write for, you know what I mean? Like, or maybe, you know, he asked, he, he, he thought, oh, maybe you're just into plays or just playwriting. And I was like, mm, no, I, I would like to work and get paid for it. So, you know, it, it, um, he, you know, someone like him sort of is aware of it, but, you know, I think, I think people, people like to portray um, positive sort of like images of themselves, especially in social media, which I understand. Um, at the same time, the re reality of looking for work and that all of my jobs, most of my jobs, I'll say that, have come from other writers. It, to me, logically makes sense that if you're looking for work and if you need a, a toe in the door, the way to get it is you like you do multi-pronged you go through your agents if you have them you go through your network if you have one you know what i mean like that to me that's just the way you do it and you don't you know abuse the relationship or whatever i don't think that's abusive it's just like you know when when you're feeling that thing of like you know it's okay for once twice a year to be like hey i'm here look for work you know <laughs> right i need i need a little help and i you yeah. know and we all do. And anyone who would begrudge you that I think and, and this is the, to me like the thing it's like anyone who would begrudge you for saying that thing or for being in that position is not someone you want to be with you don't want to be with that person you know what yeah. I mean you don't want to be in a relationship with that person like that that is a fucking red flag and I also you know it's interesting because I was thinking like it's great and a positive thing in television is writers get other writers work however yeah. the thing not to take away when we think about theater is the two-pronged, multi-pronged thing of like, how am I going to get my play in front of this theater that I think somebody, well, do you know somebody who knows them? And like, why not pull every push at every avenue that you have? You know, and it's the same thing because you still want people to read you and you still want, everybody knows you want to get produced. But I still think there has to be, I, I just think when you said that, it resonated also writing for a certain jobs this week and i'm going right i know that person i have to ask that person for help otherwise mm -hmm. you know otherwise my letter is going to be one of a thousand mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know how do i make it one of 500 well right and i i tell you know writers who study with me i tell them often it's like put yourself in the position of a showrunner when they have a show that just got greenlit and they have to staff a room they're getting scripts from everyone and their mother from every direction. It's like a 360 degree spew. So you're getting eight scripts from agents. You're getting them from managers. You're getting them from your friend you haven't seen in 20 years. You're getting them from fucking everybody. And then you have friends. You're, you're friends with writers. They're all looking for work, all of it, right? So the, the stack is enormous. So then your job as a writer is like, okay, I like six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Like how close am I to the showrunner? Like, can I get my script from the bottom half of the mile to the top? 10.10 you know what i mean yeah that, like that's actually the the game and even then it might not 
do it. You know what I mean? Um, and not even just because like, maybe the sample doesn't resonate with them. Maybe like, you know, they've got like, they only have it's a lot of this time. It's like the budget for the writer's room cannot accommodate everybody. So they need, like, they really need a strong co-EP. They really have the staff writer already. Like, you know, it, it becomes a jockeying position for very, um, you know, a couple of seats. You know what I mean? I'm also really interested in things you rattled off pretty chin up at the public. You did this huge project with Marsha Norman. You right. did this reading, and I remember, is it Deep Trees? Yeah, with um, Lily, Lily Taylor and, yeah. And Bobby Carnival. Yeah, know, and sound, yeah. Public reading of that play. And, you know, by any measure of somebody who is looking at this as a starting point of writing, a playwriting career, it's like, oh, that's a foundation of success. That would look like at the outside if you told somebody, hey, and you're, you know, you went to Juilliard, right? You, the writing program you got in, which I love. They're like, I had no will to get in, which is like, no, no hope, no hope. You know, no like, hope. like, like I can apply because nothing's going to happen, which mm. is the best. But <laughs> with all of that foundational stuff, right? It's like, I got invited to a writer's room and I went. I, I can talk about the grade of theater and all those other processes and what that changed, but I'm wondering about that decision and what made you make that decision of like, I'm going to go in that room? I just felt like I had this pervasive feeling in theater that it didn't matter. It just, it just fucking didn't matter what I did. I was not going to get anywhere. <laughs> like I just like, I could not get an agent. I could not get a production with a review. I couldn't, it was, it, it just felt like there was a constant wall that I was hitting all the time. And it didn't matter who I had in my play. It didn't matter, like, you know, and I felt like, you know, I, I mean, I have, I have feelings about this stuff, obviously, but I just had a pervasive sense of like, it does not matter what I do. I will never get traction in theater. And then it suddenly occurred to me, like, why am I fighting so hard for something that doesn't want me? And even if it did, it wouldn't pay me shit. Like I got paid for development production for Pretty Chin Up. I made $1,500 for several years of work and a lot of fucking tears. You know what I mean? I think I got paid $25 for a Metro card for my reading for Deep Trees, you know? And I was mismanaged by the artistic directorship of that theater company as a result of that, the of that play. And I had people with me who saw it happen, you know? So to me, I just was like, if I can't get purchase in this area, and meanwhile, Tom Fontana comes in and is like, have $30,000 to write this script that will be shot and aired in front of millions of people, Andrea. I'm going to go with the person who wants to pay me $30,000 and support my career in a meaningful fucking way, as opposed to some other bullshit. Like, well, straight up, that's how I feel. Listen, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because straight up, that's how you feel. And, yeah. and you, you know, the Fontana thing, I can't, in our conversation, we can't put aside that you did the work, right? You yeah. showed up for years doing this very, and you involved me in that program. I got to be a writer a couple of times in that and uh, incredibly valuable for all the reasons you said, like it's right. internally valuable because you're learning about the families and also you're meeting other writers of other mediums too, which yeah. was great. And, and also for like a millisecond, I'm like, oh, I'm a writer, you know? Yeah. And I think I want to just be really clear about that too. Like, cause I, I know that, that networking, the term networking gets, uh, gets a shitty rep 
um, it's sort of poo-pooed upon, or maybe, I, I don't know, it feels like transactional or uh, utilitarian or something like that. And I'm like, I, I really, I feel like networking and having a relationship with many different writers is actually good for you. Like spiritually, it's good for your writing. It's good for your spirit. It's good for your social life, obviously. Um, and it to me, what it does is it takes away um, or at least abates um, the sense of that this capitalist sense of competition. Everyone's an enemy. I'm in competition with everybody. Like that, that mindset is like poison for me. It fucking sucks. Some people may be able to deal with it. And yeah, some people thrive. I, I, I can't. I can't do it. I, I just can't do it. Yeah, <laughs> you know? some people thrive on competition, and I, you're, I'm with you. I don't. Not in. You know, the playoff baseball is happening right now. That's my competition. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. I don't need competition in my art. When it comes, yeah, to creativity, like to me, I just uh, like I run screaming from that. And and it's interesting because I I'm interested in the in what you were saying about it. I can't, you know, I can't. I'm not going to get anywhere. And yet, and I I want to say it because you were clearly getting somewhere but you were recognizing like, oh, this feeling doesn't feel like I'm I'm at the public, but I got $1,500 right. <laughs> and I'm at the public, but I didn't get a review. Right. Or I'm at the public and my play went well and then nothing happened. Like and nothing happened and then nothing happened with it. And it was like, and I saw the same theater company bend over backwards to produce other plays that were as good or not as good, but bend over backwards to get those plays full-on productions with the whole thing and I just felt like I you know I I want that amount of commitment from a theater company that I dedicated so much time to for free or close to it and there's nothing wrong with me wanting that because certainly there was a group of people who demanded that also and got it well, let's, uh, let's, let's, <laughs> without talking about the the theater company in particular, right? But but that idea, because I think I think there's a lot of relationship to that. Of like, I mean, I relate to that 100. Sure. And is and that feeling of like, oh, I'm I'm not viewed in this world that way, and these people over here are. Mm -hmm. And it's because what's interesting is one of the reasons I sent the email, I've always wanted to talk to you. And I thought, oh, I can talk to you because you posted about quitting. Oh, right. With the acting thing. yeah. On, on the social media, you took the article okay. about that and you wrote yeah. about theater and breaking up in a bad relationship with theater. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, oh, that's it's interesting because what you also what you found is the door that opened is a path of least resistance in the sense of somebody saying, I will pay you and I will do this, not least resistance, but then, and finding a community where that sense of, you know, in that other room, these people are accepted and this doesn't feel that way, but you're getting it in this other world. And I thought, is that, you know, it was tied to the article of quitting, but I thought, oh, it's not quitting, right? It's finding like, oh, I can let go of this one way that I thought I had to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, because I had a certain vision of what my career was supposed to look like, what I was supposed to be doing, like who I was supposed to be doing it with. And at one point that was true. 
it was it was accurate, you know, like in the 90s and, and going into 2000, 2001, it was I'm an actor. I, I got some jobs that paid me some money. I worked in television. I, you know, like it wasn't where I wanted to be. But I also was a certain type at a certain time that was not welcome. Like, you know what I mean? Like people want to talk about body positivity and how much they love Lizzo and all this shit now, which I'm happy for. But fucking 15, 20 years ago, that was not the case. It was not the case. You know, someone like me was laughed out of the room often. Or I could play like the fat chick that makes a you know joke of herself, you know, on TV for everyone's enjoyment. It was horrible. So you know, that was the struggle at that time. And and but, you know, I was cobbling things together the best I could. Um, I, you know, was finding my sea legs, writing up writing plays didn't know what the fuck I was doing I was doing the best I could and I lost the train a little bit but like well it, I was talking it, about finding go of a perception of who you're supposed to be and it's interesting well, I forgot but you're right you start as an actor yeah I started like, as an actor and, and like, even at NYU I was a dramatic writing as I was an actor in writing and the fourth year uh Travis Preston at Playwrights Horizons at NYU allowed me to be in the fourth year acting project with M Mac Wellman's play because I was desperate to be a fucking actor also. And he let me be in that play, you know, it was cool. But anyway, like, yeah, what happened was, I remember the day that I realized like, oh my God, I actually hate this. Um, <laughs> where I, I, had, I, I had booked a little job in The Sopranos as a waitress. I had 10 seconds of airtime. You could see like my jawline or whatever. And then I had um, booked a, a, a guest star on um, one of the early seasons of um, Criminal Intent. And it had a big scene with, uh, with um, oh, what the hell is his name? D'Onofrio, Vincent D'Onofrio, sorry. I just had a total senior moment. Okay, so anyway, the scene was with him, but like before I even got down there, just like, you know, set the lights or, you know, whatever places, rehearse the shit, whatever. I was in a, my dressing room um, in, you know, an outfit or whatever, uh, my costume, and I started to balk. I was so unhappy. I was so unhappy and it made no sense to me. I was like, why am I crying? Why am I upset? Like, I just, I booked this job. Like, I, this is what you want, right? And like, I just, after that, I kind of, I hated auditioning. I hate, I didn't want to do anything that actors needed to do to like get the job, you know? I, I didn't want to take acting classes. I didn't want to do Shakespeare. I didn't want to do shit. I just, I, it was like, no, no, no. And I didn't recognize that that was maybe a sign. <laughs> I was unhappy. <laughs> like, I just, I don't know what I thought I was doing. I don't know what that was. You know what I mean? I just, I, you know, I was, I was brought up to not pay attention to myself. And so that was part of it. And it wasn't until 2010 um, or, or around there, like I was in Juilliard at the time where I was just like, you know what, like pay attention to where the things are, where the yeses are coming from and go in that direction. Like, why are you trying to make this thing over here happen when you fucking hate it? And all you think about is how fat and ugly you are all the time because you're an actor in New York. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like- And they're reminding. Yeah, it's like that profession brings out 100% the, the worst of my character defects, the people pleasing, the paranoia, the fear, the self-hatred, the eating disorders, like all this shit. I was like, why, why are you doing, if this is how, like, you can't help that this is how you react to this thing. You know what I mean? After how many, you know, 10 years of this shit, you know what I mean? Or, or more, you know, like go in the direction of, go, go in the direction of Tom Fontaine. <laughs> 
Well, well, I say that because at first it starts with the acting and you're not happy, right? Yeah. And then your playwriting. And in my mind, all measures are successful, right? Just saying, just as I already said already, but Juilliard, production at the public, that project with Marsha Norman that took you around all the different countries was to create a theater piece. Right. Which is a story in and of itself, but still the, the ability to go, like she sent me and I went and it was, um, you know, I have a lot of complex feelings about that trip, but it was a massive education. Yeah. And, and a, and a a lifelong dream of mine to go to travel all over the world to places that, you know, and you would also, and I don't want to misrepresent, but I know the issue was important. I know it was about women and I want you to just say a little bit about it so that it's not totally vague on the, Sure. No, it was about, it was basically the job was to go to these 10 countries um, and make connections with the UN and therefore um, mid to small um, NGOs that were working in different countries um, with uh, women and children, mostly. Um, And then, and naturally by extension, men, because they are part of the family unit. And that was more, more the case um, in, in Africa when I was there. Um, like, you know, in different, like in Burundi, especially. Um, so yeah, so it was a, it was a massive education about things like, you know, gender violence, sex slavery, but ultimately too, um, with that, what I learned, which wasn't necessarily um, part of the curriculum of the trip, but what I started seeing in every single country, or I guess, let me rephrase this. I had always, I had, I knew about colonialism from a definite white colonial mindset. I didn't understand it in, as a global movement and how it replicated certain patterns over and over again in every country. And when it, when it quote unquote left, the, the detritus it left behind in terms of abuses and corruption and, and a new, a neo-colonial sort of like action, like those things, I didn't, I didn't know. And I saw it up front um, and saw how I was in that trip, um, a part of it and complicit in it also. Um, So it really got funky. (laughs) Um, It got super funky, but it was such a, it was, it changed my life. It changed my life. Yeah. And I, I, I also, that's, it changed your life. It influenced your life because not only is your activism on all levels with this conscious awareness of that, it's impacted your writing and what you write about, it seems, you know, and the stories you tell, all of that, that and the work with the wounded warriors and everything is mm-hmm. resonates. But I'm thinking on that project, it's like, wow, you get to work in the theater with an established writer who's at the respected at the highest level. Sure. And on a project that clearly is you're learning from, but also matches your values. Mm-hmm. So all of that seems to know that success. And I want to say like, it's good. I don't know what I want to say. Part of me is like, and at some point to know like, oh, that's not the path. And there's moments when you're in the middle of it. And I just think it's, I think I'm struck by it because we're coming out of COVID and the world is, the the industry is changing and everyone's looking at pathways for how they're going to make success and what, how they define success and what it is. And and I think this idea of changing how you go about doing what you do is what everybody's considering, and I or is 
not everybody, but a lot of people are looking at and going like, yeah, it's okay. It's totally okay. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, again, you know, for me, like the last eight years um, have been about how to reduce or if not eradicate the crisis out of my life. Cause there were many, right. It's like financially it was in debt, still climbing out of that bullshit. I was in debt after 20 years of being in New York and NYU and, you know, um, living as a theater artist and making no money and, you know, like just terrible like that. Um, I had a tremendous amount of weight gain. That was always a lifelong problem for me. I was smoking. I had been a smoker for 30 years. Um, the financial stuff that emotionally was fucking, you know, wrecked through a long-term relationship that had ended. And, and then there was a lot of stuff going on with like, you know, a lot of death in 2014. And so I was the first year that I was here, you know, my first room as a staff writer, like it went well, but I, I was not do, I personally was not doing well. I still was carrying like all this stuff from New York that I, that I had to like take care of. And so it took a long ass time and a lot of changes, um, like medical and otherwise, um, to dial down the noise in my life so that I could actually be a productive writer. And that also meant like, you know, this, whatever this idea is of theater being like the more noble, a more literary art form, or like just more morally correct than television is absolute fucking nonsense, <laughs> like to the highest degree. And I was like, you know what? It is 100% possible to provide for yourself and do good work, period. And really keep it that simple. And, and, and again, too, like, I don't know about television, People are crying on Twitter all the time that television is going to go the way of the dodo too. Like life marches on and we are often tread underfoot. So I have to, again, approach like, you know, the, all of this shit could go away tomorrow. And then where are you? Are you still okay? Are you still going to be okay if TV's gone? You know, like, will I freak out? Will I get mad? Will I have feelings? Yes. But will I be able to survive? Also, yes. You know? And so I have to like, I have to approach this in this way because at any point there's nothing... I've been very lucky. I mean, and I also work hard, but I've also been lucky and it could also go away tomorrow. It just could. And I have to kind of be aware of that in order to function. Cause if I, if I rely on it, if I hold on to it too tightly, it will ruin me. And I've already done that and I'm not doing it again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think that's good. And it's interesting, yeah. right? Because I think like, if you hold on to something as being noble, that's not the reason to stay. That's not the reason to do it. Not in this life. <laughs> you know, it's not. It's not well, yeah. not to me. It's not. It's like you do it because it feeds you. Yeah. Right. Hopefully, literally, and spiritually, and emotionally, right. and and it feeds your values and everything. But if you're not, if you're not being fed, then be aware of that. Well, like you were saying, also just in. I agree with you on the networking thing too. Is like, I'm not, I, I think if it's about asking for jobs and that's why you're in, it's like, well, no, get around the people you like, get around the people who do what you do because you, you, you do it for the similar reasons. And you think about it, not that you do it the same way, right? but you think about it in a similar way. And, and so that when you can talk about it, you're, you're expanding yourself in, 
in, in sense of community and not being alone, but also in your growth of, as an artist. Right. Um, but I, yeah, I really just, I, I love when you said lucky, I'm like, sure. You know, there's always, I think there's always luck involved in a door opening and has to be. And, and yeah. it, you know, I also, you know, I think when you thought about the theater company of like this group that bent over backwards for me, they didn't, I, and I agree. I don't think it's talent, right? It's not a differential of talent. It's a differential of like, this group supports this person, mm -hmm. this person. And mm -hmm. it, and it's, it, there's no logic to illogical to it. And if you try to attach logic and reason to it, you're, you're going to go insane because it's like, no, go, go something that uh, somebody very smart said it was either Cole Suddeth or Father Jim, but it was um, go where it's warm. That's exactly correct. You know, yeah. and and pay attention to where it's warm. Right. And it's very painful when there's a place that you thought was warm or you want it to be warm and it's not warm or it was warm and now it's not. I mean, who knows, you know, who things knows? change, yeah. but like, yeah, yeah. And, and my mistake, right, is when you, you see something uh, for what it is, and then you keep trying to change it. And it, and there's been many, many times, and again, you know, certainly not the only one. So if you keep trying to change something and it, it is, you know, uh, impervious to change, <laughs> you have to like, you know, like yeah. you have to see what it is. <laughs> That's what it is. And it's yeah. telling you what it is yeah. over and over again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This conversation, you know, it's for me, I want to also ask because you did say all the personal change. What do you think? What do you think you were able to put in your life to be able to quiet the noise? What allowed that to happen? Because you did do, right? You quit smoking, you got healthier, you're whatever, all the other things, right? you know, I'm like, you have a great life with two dogs, you know, you have, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and working in a field that you belong in. And, and I'm just, I think there has to be something not there has to be, but usually there's an internal shift and an external something that allows for that work to get done. Mm -hmm. And what do you think it was for you? I, well, I mean, frankly, I mean, it was, I, I went to a number of 12 step programs for all kinds of shit, um, you know, food, sex and love, money, and then relationships with other addicts of which there were many, um, and just working the steps in all of those programs for, uh i mean what like 18 years now <laughs> do you know what i mean like it has been a long ass time and therapy and wellbutrin and getting a trainer and you know what i mean like all of the other things that are outside of program i think like one of the mistakes that i made in in a 12-step program initially is that this is going to solve all my problems and it shifted a lot of stuff like let me not misspeak like it did a lot of work or I did a lot of work in it and then saw the results of it. But I also had to take the outside support too, you know, and one of them was, you know, for me was a gastric bypass surgery, which was not recommended by a fucking, you know, 12 step, you know, OA, whatever. Um, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be saying those things out loud, but there it is. Uh, but <laughs> the thing is like, I was like, it, it literally was, it was coming down to a point where I don't know if I told you the story, but like in 2015 in the summer it was like every day I was waking up and I was like I was about to be 40 I think and I was like you cannot continue this way because you're going to die 
you're either going to have a heart attack and drop dead or you're going to kill yourself literally and there was there were pills in my house that my dentist had given me that were like narcotics and i called my friend i was like come get these pills because i cannot have them here and um he took them and then for so for three weeks i would wake up every morning and there's there'd be this voice like you should get a gastric bypass which was totally antithetical to everything i had ever thought ever because i was like i'm gonna lose the weight myself i'm gonna diet i'm gonna you know it was all this like me me i'm my way my way with programs so therefore it's not my way because it's program you know what i mean and and so there was one point where i went to a meeting and I just had this thought, like, well, what if your, you know, higher powers will for you is to get a gastric bypass? That is, what if that's the way you have to do it? Right, still- what, what, what if your higher powers thing is like, you should write for TV? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, why does it have to, like, you know, when you're, if you're clawing onto something like, okay, that's self-will right there. So it's like, you know, this thing of like, why don't you just go get the information? If it rolls out easily for you, maybe you should follow that path. And I have blessed to finally have health insurance because of my television jobs, right? I have excellent health insurance now when I didn't have it for 15 years. And so then I went to this, you know, place that performs gastric bypasses. I met with them, started to cry because he was like, they were like, it is not your fault that this is happening. He's like, your body is in a war with you to keep this weight on, especially for people who struggle with morbid obesity or whatever. And then this whole process rolled out with my insurance paid for it. All I had to pay was $3,000, you know, like I had, everything was like, it was easy, you know, what was hard afterwards, like, you know, you do it and then you still have to measure your food. You still have to watch what you do. Like, you know, I'm still doing it. Like it's been six years. I never gained the weight back. That's the first time in my life that I've never gained the weight back. That's amazing. Right. And, and it was it was one sorry go ahead no just that it was transformational and your willingness to do it was transformational and then just for everybody who should follow andrea chenevay on social media you can see the work that you do well right and then i got a trainer and she like taught me how to weight train i go to the gym like five days a week now that's unheard of i i used to be the bitch in central park with my two dogs and a cigarette at seven in the morning cackling at the runners calling them assholes (laughs) Like, like I like the the arrogance was really, really strong, like calcified, you know what I mean? So like those things like and 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 honestly, for me, like I know there are some people who like, you know, will say, oh, this fat phobic or whatever, like they like that's a whole thing that I kind of don't want to wade into. But what I will say is that some people can handle being overweight and be happy in their life. I am not one of those people. I'm just not. And if I am not happy in my life, I am never going to be doing a great job or my best job when I go in for a meeting for a job. You know what I mean? Or if I go into a room, I'm not going to be bringing my best self because I'm half my brain will be constantly involved in self-sabotage, self-hatred and self-destruction. So I'm not even operating at a full capacity. So for me, I have to take care of these fucking burning fires in order to focus on on the shit that I want to focus on. I know you teach a lot and you're very generous in that. And I'm just curious what your, if somebody's starting out on any career Mm. in the arts, um, what advice do you have? I mean, I teach the way I wish I had been taught. You know what I mean? Like I felt 
frequently, at least in theater, that I was not um I was not given guide posts or guardrails. Or maybe I didn't hear them. I don't know. But I, I really feel like there was a lack of like, you know, apprenticeship um, or honest and kind feedback. And it's possible to have both. So I would say like someone starting out, what you want from somebody, first of all, take care of yourself and make sure your ducks are in a row in your life. Um, this idea that you have to be starving or in crisis or in turmoil in order to be creative is a false one and actually antithetical. So I'd say that, and I would say, be willing to pay, um, you know, someone that you trust to read and provide feedback on your work that is kind and honest. So, and specific. Um, those are the things I would look for. And so, and I would say like anything, um, like there had been many times in my life where if someone else had gone through like, you know, like that story that I was told about my first reading of Pretty Chin Up that was like that happened in Saratoga or whatever the fuck it was. Like if someone else had gone through that, they may have quit writing. I know that I almost quit writing because of it. It was so awful. And so what I would say is just like with the self-care stuff with your health and whatever else, like you must be doggedly committed to never abandoning yourself right so if you want to go in and be a writer um and it may be that you're not supposed to be writing in theater you might be a writer for video games like that you might be a writer for features or something it might be something else like the path still goes somewhere but never give up on the fact that you can write that you are a writer like for me like i know i'm a good actor i'm still a good actor i don't act i do not pursue it but I know that I I made the choice to shut that down. Like that is not a thing I want to pursue. You know what I mean? It, it's just like, because I know that the, pi the price that I have to pay in order to be there is not one I'm willing to pay. It doesn't benefit me for the return, but writing does. So I, I, I guess I'm just trying to like find the words. I would suppose, I just say, never let, never let anyone make you feel like shit. In, when it comes to when it comes to your creativity you know what i mean it may be there may be days that you get feedback from someone that is not the feedback you want to hear it might be you know upsetting but if it's delivered kindly and it's delivered specifically with specific notes then you know it's coming from a good place Great. So great to talk to Andrea. I just really appreciate it. I also love the self-care part of it and the thing that it takes to, you know, to taking care of yourself is is important. You want to make sure that, you know, I liked when she said, you know, you don't have to struggle for your art. And I think that we both agree that's a myth and everybody knows that you don't have to, but the lengths at which she is disciplined in caring for herself is really impressive. And I, I also said, I also like the idea of like, how she described getting a teacher and somebody who's giving you honest feedback, encouraging, supportive, and specific. It doesn't have to be all positive, but if they're going to tell you it doesn't work, then tell you why. And I thought that was really good targeted advice, as well as don't give up on yourself. You know, if you, if you think your 
a great, you know, you're a talented writer, then, then you're a writer and find the, find the discipline and, and, and meaning, find what avenue works for you. Maybe it's, you know, like you said, maybe it's gaming, maybe it's TV, maybe it's film, maybe it's theater, maybe it's musicals, maybe it's a novel. And, and just to trust yourself. And I like that a lot. And I just, I love the whole conversation because, uh, as you heard, very forthright and honest. And um, and also, I just want to share that, you know, I think I talked about it in the pod, but that idea of working with Fontana for so long, it wasn't like, you know, like I did three workshops with the Writers Guild. And it was great, a great experience, very valuable to working with veterans, working with the families of veterans, caretakers. But I didn't, you know, I, I didn't invest the time. And I think that's the thing that I was really impressed with is that Andrea not only produced for years before that opportunity came, it wasn't a one-off. It wasn't like, oh, I did one thing. I was next to this person. Now they're going to give me something. It was they saw the commitment and dedication and, and, and what kind of worker they are and got to know her. And then the opportunity came up and it felt authentic and it felt like it's, you know, it's, you know, it, it takes time. As much as she said, oh, this, you know, gift got dropped in her lap, I thought, well, it got dropped in her lap because she put her lap in the right place a lot of times. She did the work, you know, she showed up and, and did a lot of work and proved worthy and reliable and someone you want to have around. And I think that's, that's the thing that I took away from that. You know, it's not one person offered it because it was easy or I was near them or I did something once. It's like I kept showing up and they knew that it was valuable. And equally, once you told the story of the theater, it's like, oh, I kept getting showing up and I wasn't being treated as valuable. And I think that, you know, I'm not putting one, not putting one against the other. I think it's just know that like when you're investing your time into something, look for look for who's recognizing it. You're giving them value. Who's seeing your value and giving something back? And that's vital. So I'm glad to be back. I'm looking forward to another season of talking with you. And again, email us. If you have any thoughts of things you'd like to hear about or thoughts about the conversation you just heard, email me at patrick, P-A-D-R-A-I-C, at thefarmtheater.org. And, you know, also tell people about, uh, if you like the conversation, share it with friends. And you know, it's great to keep expanding the listening. I love that. And I love hearing from people who tell me it's useful because uh, that's why we're doing the conversations. Make sure the information gets shared and, and really, really excited to be back for season five. And with that, we're out. We're out.